Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Good morning. Um, Quick bowling story, since on Wednesday we're going to be going bowling. Um, uh, I'm not going to tell you a story. I'm just going to... No, I will. I will. So we... Uh, my in-laws live in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul area, and my father-in-law is uh, 76, 77 years old, and he retired after working for the Minneapolis Star Tribune newspaper. For He worked there for 40-some years, and, uh, and one of his hobbies in retirement is bowling. Uh, he's a pretty avid bowler. And, um, and he goes bowling at Memory Lanes in South Minneapolis. Uh, he goes bowling, I think, about once a week uh, in the winter time when you can't do anything outdoors in the winter in, in Minneapolis. But you can go bowling. And so one of these years, we were back there visiting, and, and he kept saying, I really, I really want you guys to come bowling. And I'm not very good at bowling, and, um, and he's very, very good at bowling. And so I wasn't very enthusiastic about it. But he said, my friends and I, we, we go bowling once a week, and, and we, would, we would just love for you to come and join us. And so, uh, so grudgingly, we piled the kids into the car and drove over to Memory Lanes. And, uh, and we get there, and the place is closed. It's not even open. And it's like, what? I thought this was a weekly thing. He said, no, no, no. The guy shows up and opens it up early for us because it's a bunch of senior citizens who go and do this. And and so we're there waiting in the parking lot. It is freezing cold, and finally some guy shows up. And yeah, sure enough, he's there. He works at the bowling alley, and he opens it early for all these old geezers, you know, once a week. And, and uh, <laughs> so anyhow, um, we, other cars start showing up. And, and most of these guys are like 10 to 20 years older than my father-in-law. So he's the young guy that's here hanging out with all of these 80, 90-year-old bowlers. I mean, many of them don't seem that they should have driven there on their own because they're up there. And so we go in, and we're bowling, and, and, then, and then, you know, these guys are 80, 90 years old. Uh, they're decent bowlers, but of course, this young 77-year-old spring chicken is just rolling strike after strike. And, and it was really an awesome opportunity for us to go and hang out with people who, um, you know, are part of the greatest generation. I'm saying all of this, I'm telling this story because you older people have an opportunity to give our young people a gift this week. Uh, we've invited the whole church family out to go bowling as a thank you to our kids for various things they've done. Uh, throughout COVID, I think the most notable one was writing cards to our first responders, encouragement cards to our first responders. And our children's director said, I want to do something to thank these kids. What should we do? And we thought about a number of different opportunities, and we ended up settling on bowling night, uh, partly because we thought this is something that everybody can do. Everybody can go bowling. Now, not everybody can go bowling well, but 
Everybody can go bowling. Um, and so we've got lanes reserved. We've got food ordered. We would love for you to come out on Wednesday night and give these kids an opportunity to go bowling with, um, with everyone, um, all different generations. Um, I think it would be great if you showed up to go bowling and if you bowled with some people who weren't even your kids, maybe kids that you don't even know. Uh, what a great opportunity to interact and mix it up and, and just be a part of a multi-generational event. So that's my soapbox for May the 4th night. You don't have to dress up in a Darth Vader costume. Just show up and go bowling with a bunch of kids and let's have a great uh, church family time together. And, uh, and I'll sweeten the deal. You know, whoever gets the highest score of the night will definitely get a shout out at church next week. All right. Just so that everyone can know who the bowling numero uno is. Um, I guarantee it won't be me. Um, all right. So let's play a little game. This game is called one of these three things doesn't belong. All right. Uh, I'm going to give you three things and you just shout out which one doesn't belong. All right. The first three things, a guitar, a yo-yo, and a drum. Which one doesn't belong? Wrong. Yo-yos have strings. Guitars have strings. The drums don't belong. All right, now that you've seen how the game works, now that you've seen how the game works, we'll give you another opportunity. All right. Football, basketball, Canada. You guys are all over the place. You're trying to anticipate which one it is. It's football. Football doesn't belong. Give yourself a pat on the back if you guessed football. Because basketball was invented by a Canadian, right? So you knew this. Now, obviously, if you're feeling like this game is rigged, it, it kind of is. Um, one of the things that really helps us understand what things go together or what belongs is when we maybe have a little more context. If I said things with strings, guitar, yo-yo, drum, you all, or at least 95% of you, would have said the drum doesn't belong, right? And then a few of you that maybe don't know how drum works maybe think there's a string in there somewhere. Um, but when you understand the context of things and, and the bigger picture, when you're able to connect the dots to the bigger picture, uh, you, can, you can better understand what things go together, what things belong in something what doesn't. Uh, the reason that I, I talk about this is because we've started the Gospel of John. Uh, last week we talked about these big ideas that are in chapter one of, of the Gospel of John. These ideas of the Word who is God and is with God, the Word becoming flesh. We talk about light and life, and we talk about light shining into darkness and darkness not being able to overcome it. And, and John's writing this beautiful, wonderful poem in the beginning of his Gospel about these great big ideas. And then as we're reading through chapter run, chapter 1, sorry, there are a few verses that pop out and just seem like they don't belong. They seem a little different. The first one's in verse 6. And so up until verse 6, we've been reading, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, through Him everything was made. And then in, in uh, well, I'll start in verse 4. Uh, it says, and in him was life, that life was the light of all mankind. There's a big idea. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or cannot overcome it or can't even comprehend it, some translations say. 
Then in verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, but he came as a witness to the light. So we have big ideas, big ideas, and then we've got this guy, John. He's not the light, okay, so someone else is being introduced here. He came as a witness to the light, okay, this guy is a witness. And it's like, all right, I mean, wonderful he's been thrown in there, but it just seems like, why are we talking about John? Who is this guy? Is this the author of the book, the book of John? This guy's named John. What is going on? And we can probably ignore this problem, this person who popped up and didn't seem to belong, because Right away, as we read on, we're back to the big idea. So verse 9 says, The true light that gives light to sorry, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. Um, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. These are these are more big ideas. Talking about this light of God that is pierced through the darkness has been put into our world. Um, it says in verse 14, the word, the word became flesh. We talked about this last week. He made his dwelling among us. And because the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The, the chapter is sort of crescendoing. I think the word made flesh in my mind is the high point of John chapter 1. It might be the highlight or the high point of all of Scripture, if, uh, if I'm honest, at least for me. Uh, that's the crescendo of the narrative arc. That's in verse 14. Then in verse 15, it comes back and says, John testified concerning him, concerning the word. He cried out and he said, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So big ideas, big ideas. Back to this guy, John. And the author, John, says of this other guy, John, hey, John testified about all of this when he said, the one who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And if your head is going, feeling a little bit confused, I would be feeling confused too. Who's this John? What is he talking about? Oh, he's the guy who was talking about this when he said that. What, when did he say that? I don't, it's sort of like you're just thrown into the middle of the story. Um, now, this character, John, doesn't just pop up in the Gospel of John. This person who came and said, Jesus was before me, he's greater than me. He, his name is John the Baptist, and he's actually an important part of every single Gospel that we have uh, in the Scriptures. All four Gospels mention and kind of introduce John the Baptist in their intro. You think, why is John the Baptist such a big deal? Why is he included? Do we need to talk about him at all? Do we need to even bother using a Sunday to talk about John the Baptist? Uh, and I think that we do for a couple of reasons. One, I think one of the reasons that John includes him and one of the reasons the other gospel writers include John the Baptist is because they're not just writing a theological discussion of abstract ideas. This isn't an opportunity for a bunch of people to get together and, and write about God and talk about God as if he's just this crazy idea out there. But this is the, the idea of bringing Jonathan Erev reminds us that this is also part history. It's a theological discussion, but it's also 
a, a history, a, a historical occasion. There are key figures. There are people. There's a sequence of events that matters in all these things that have happened. And John the Baptist, this man who had a notable ministry in first century Judea, John the Baptist is used as, as sort of an anchor, a historical anchor for this whole story. It gives us a context, setting, time, and place. All of this that happened with Jesus was happening around the time of John the Baptist. Maybe you're a, a Jewish person living in first century Judea, and you, this Jesus thing has somehow, this is news that you haven't been aware of, but maybe you know about this other famous person. Now, John the, John the Apostle is writing his gospel a few decades after uh, all of the things that happened with Jesus happened. And so when John brings up John the Baptist and Jesus, it, I think it might be helpful to get a picture of what he's doing, to think about a sports writer, a modern sports writer, using Wilt Chamberlain, whose basketball career was from 1959 to 1973. So maybe the sports writer is writing an article about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, whose basketball career was a couple of, started, overlapped Wilt Chamberlain's by a few years, but went for a couple decades later. And so now, a few decades after both of these guys were basketball players, a sports writer who's writing an article about the younger one, the later one, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, might mention at some point that Wilt Chamberlain was around in the NBA as well. So the greatest known player up to that time sets the stage for this next greatest known player. And in many ways, I think that's what the Gospelers are doing with John the Baptist. This influential, notable person who ministered a few decades ago is used to set the stage for this even greater, more notable person who ministered a few decades ago. Keeping in mind that these things were written a long, long time ago to an original audience with original purposes in mind. Now, the Gospels are claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And so another reason to bring John the Baptist into it is because Jewish people, the, the audience of the original Gospels, Jewish people have been waiting for this Messiah for centuries. And if you ever are waiting for something, I mean, I remember being a child and we're waiting for the bus, right? And I'm waiting and I'm looking up the road for the bus. And when a large yellow vehicle comes, I'm my mind's been looking for that sign. I've been looking for a large yellow vehicle, and my mind says, that's the bus. When a neighbor's car drives by, my mind doesn't say, that's the bus, because not all of my signs have been fulfilled. Now, maybe when uh, one of my siblings is there waiting with me as a, as a hilarious and wonderful prank, one might look up the road and say, there's the bus. And then everyone looks but there's no bus there. It's just a joke. It's just kids having fun while they're waiting for the bus. Um, but the Jewish people have been waiting for a Messiah. And so it's like they're looking around and they're looking for signs that the Messiah has shown up. One of the things that they're waiting for in the day that this Messiah would come, they know that someone is supposed to come before the Messiah. There's supposed to be uh, someone coming uh, before the Messiah comes there's, there's supposed to be one who is a messenger who goes before him. 
This is because their prophets have said before the day of the Lord, before the Messiah comes, there is going to be other, there's going to be one coming before him. Uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke of this one saying that there will be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Another prophet, Malachi, said, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. So before the day of the Lord, I'm going to send my messenger. And so these prophecies had created an expectation on the part of the Jewish people that before the Messiah shows up, we're going to be watching. One way we're going to know he's coming soon is, is someone's going to show up and really fulfill this prophecy. There's going to be a voice of someone crying out in the wilderness. There's going to be a messenger coming before them. Or sorry, coming before the Messiah. The people are looking for this sign. And, and a lot of it was rooted in, um, in ancient sort of kingdom, uh, empire practices. So when a new person was taking over the world, messengers would go out and let people know that. You didn't have the internet back then, so you couldn't just Google who's in charge here. You were relying on messengers going out from town to village and saying, hey, you know, Alexander the Great, guess what? He conquered you all. He's now your king, right? Cyrus is now ruler over this. And so the idea was, and and the prophetic idea was leaning into that cultural practice and saying to the people, when the Messiah comes, who's going to set up a kingdom that knows no end, it's going to last forever, when he comes... Just like messengers came through and told you this person's now in charge, that person's now in charge, I'm going to send my messenger ahead of the way saying, prepare the way. The king is is coming. He is now, uh, the Messiah is coming. He's now here. So the people are looking for that sign, and along comes John the Baptist. And he has this popular and, and influential ministry. People are going in crowds out into the wilderness to listen to his teaching, and to be baptized by him. John the Baptist, in uh, turning back to John chapter 1, verse 19, John the Baptist, one of the first things he does is he makes it very clear he is not the Messiah. So he's, he's not the one that they've been waiting for. Because you can imagine crowds start to gather, people have influential ministry. Uh, I mean, this guy's attracting a crowd out in the wilderness, and, and people might start to talk. Oh, you know what? Maybe he's the Messiah we've been waiting for. Well, what about the messenger? I don't know. Maybe we missed the messenger somehow. Maybe he's the Messiah. I hope he is. I mean, you're just so anxious for that Messiah to show up. You're, you're hoping and you're looking. Anyhow, uh, John the Apostle records of John the Baptist, verse 19, he says, Now this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who he was. Verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. I think part of the reason that this, they need to make this point, I mean, us living here now in this day, we probably don't feel like, I, I don't need to preach a message on why John the Baptist is not the Messiah. I mean, most of you got up early on a Sunday morning to come to church. I'm pretty sure you've got that one down. But remember, this wasn't originally written to you. It was written to people who lived within decades of the time of John's ministry. And and John had many devoted followers, just like Christ had many devoted followers. 
And so when John the Apostle is writing this account of Jesus' life, one of the things that he has to contend with is the outlandish claims he's making. That Jesus was crucified and he's alive now and you can be one of his followers, right? I mean, this is not the kind of claim that, that you would see on, on late night television and, and be pressing the buy button right away. You're like, wait a minute, this, I, this sounds skeptical. Uh, This brings skepticism. John had a lot of really dedicated followers too. And and it would have been very easy. John was executed as well. It would have been easy for some of John's followers who didn't want to give up on following John to be like, hey, he was raised from the dead and you could still be one of his followers as well. In fact, we know that John the Baptist's followers were still going around and baptizing people under John's ministry even after John had passed away. We know that from the book of Acts. And so one of the things that the Apostle John is having to make very clear is that by his own admission, by his own confession, John the Baptist, as influential as his ministry was, the fact that it's still influencing people today, he confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So let's not be confused about this. We have a Messiah who's Jesus, and we have John the Baptist who is not the Messiah. Well, if he's not the Messiah, who is he? Uh, So they asked him, all right, you're not the Messiah. Then who are you? Verse 21, are you Elijah? Now, one of the Jewish prophets had said, had said of the Messiah that he would send the prophet Elijah to the people of Israel before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before the day when the Lord comes, when the Messiah comes in the Jewish mindset. These are all hinging around the same event. And this prophecy, of course, created an expectation that Elijah is going to show up, and that's going to be the sign we look for when we know the Messiah is coming back. And those of you who joined us for Seder dinner know that one of the traditions at the Jewish Passover supper is to send a kid to the door to check for Elijah. Because if Elijah shows up, guess who's coming soon? The Messiah. Yes, very good. The Messiah. Um, And so every year we go and check, is Elijah at the door? And then every year we close the feast saying, maybe next year we'll be eating it in Jerusalem. Jerusalem meaning the kingdom, the eternal kingdom. Maybe next year, maybe within a year, Elijah will show up, the Messiah will show up, and the kingdom that knows no end will be started. Um, So they ask him, are you Elijah? John says, I am not. Are you the prophet, they say? He answers, no. There's some ambiguity in their prophecies about whether this is a prophet or whether it's Elijah. And so they, are you the Elijah? Are you the prophet? No, no, he says. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who, who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So these people who have come to question John have been sent from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It's as if the the president, the most important influential people in their society, had sent them on a special mission, figure out who John is. They show up, they see everything that's happening, they're questioning him, and they are struggling to come up with a good answer. And they're thinking about the fact that they have to go back to Jerusalem and they need an answer when they get back to Jerusalem for you know, where, who John is. John replies in the words of Isaiah the prophet. And he says to them, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. 
make straight the way for the Lord. And the Pharisees who had been sent to question him, they said, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So John says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. I'm the messenger. And they're a little confused now because in their traditions, the Jewish religious leaders had some expectations of this messenger. The messenger, or sorry, they had expectations of Elijah and the prophet, maybe not so, the messenger. Um, But they had this expectation that baptizing would be one of the signs that these three people would show. The Messiah, the prophet, and Elijah would all be people who had a ministry of baptism. And they see John the Baptist here baptizing, and they're saying, this doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. You say you're the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, and yet you're baptizing. That tells us you should be, our traditions tell us, you should be the, mess, you should be the prophet or you should be Elijah. John says to them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know. Verse 27, he is the one who comes after me and the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I think to paraphrase what John's saying to them is, yeah, I'm baptizing with water, but my baptism isn't so significant that you should be hung up on it. There's one who's coming, and actually there's one who's here right now who is so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Of course, if I'm the one who's crying out, make way for the Lord, if I'm the voice of one in the wilderness, then the one who's coming after me is the Messiah, right? Now, these guys are somewhat confused because these prophets, hundreds of years before, had been talking about this messenger figure, Elijah's something we're looking for, prophet's something we're looking for, and they didn't quite realize that all three of those pictures were the same person. I don't even think that John the Baptist realized it. I mean, they ask him, are you Elijah? And he's like, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not Elijah. I'm, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. One of the things that John is trying to make clear to them is your focus shouldn't be on the messenger. Take your eyes off of the messenger and look for the one whom he proclaims is here right now. This is an important message to the people of Israel because they need to take their eyes off of the past and they need to take their eyes off of... um, all of the expectations that they have, the things they're looking for, and they need to receive what is actually showing up and what is actually here. And this is a reoccurring theme throughout John's gospel, that this would be the message to the religious leaders. It's not looking like you thought it would. You need to let go of those expectations. You need to take your eyes off the past. You need to receive what God has put in your life here today. Sorry, the other, the other claim he's making that is unique here is he says, there is one among you even now whose sandal I'm unworthy to tie. So he's the messenger saying, prepare the way for the Lord. But he's also now saying in this moment, when these people come to question him, he's saying the Lord is already here. The Messiah is here right now. Hindsight is 2020, and and Jesus, you know, we have the benefit of looking back, you know, centuries later, 
but Jesus gives this greater revelation into the character of John the Baptist. He's the one who says to his disciples that John is, if you can receive it, if you can believe it, John is Elijah. John is the messenger. It's almost as if, if in that moment Jesus is saying to his disciples, all right, I understand you guys were looking for this sign and this sign and this sign. If you can believe it, I know it's hard to believe. I know it's not what you were expecting, but if you can believe it, John the Baptist fills, he checks every box. He fills everything. I was reflecting on the fact this week that John says, no, I'm not. And then Jesus says, yes, he is. And what do we do with that? I mean, is the scripture not contradicting itself there? This would create problems for us, especially if we just want to be skeptical about things. The reality is, I think this is a beautiful picture of what holy men and holy women, how they behave when they're filling out the roles that God calls them to in life, when they're filling out and being who God's called them to. Isn't it beautiful that, and, and remarkable and inspiring to us that John, even as he was living out who God had called him to be, was unaware of the significance of his role in the kingdom? I think what a safe place for human beings to be, right? Because the minute that we start to get excited about ourselves and what we're doing, pride becomes the beginning of our fall. And, and, and as I pondered this this week, I thought, man, John just became even cooler in my book because he didn't even realize, he didn't even fully understand what a significant character he was. John didn't buy into his own mythology. He didn't buy into these grand ideas about who he was. He just humbly walked and did what he was called to do. I think if we can, if <laughs> the minute that we become so convinced about the importance that we have in our own story, the minute that we begin to, uh, to believe in the stories that we tell about ourselves that tend to influence or inflate our place and our importance, uh, I think those are the minutes that we start to fall. Um, I'm going to take just a, a moment to step on a soapbox and say that the way that we practice Christianity in this modern day and in America, this tendency to want to celebrate and worship celebrities, the, the larger than life uh, situations and characters that we look to, uh, I think that we could really take some notes from John the Baptist here. We really need to be careful with that stuff because we become so full of ourselves so quickly, or we begin to look to ministries or, or influential leaders or authors so quickly, and, and every single one of them is just human. Every single one of them is incredibly fallible, and, and many of them fall. I mean, we, we sung a, a song that was uh, produced by Hillsong Music this morning, and, and, and as we're singing it, my mind is reminded that you know, there was, I, I don't even know, scandals with one of the influential leaders in their place. I don't, I don't keep up on the Christian gossip, but apparently it's real bad. It's real bad. Worse than human. Um, and, and then it's like, well, can we, can we sing songs by them anymore? I mean, can, can, are we allowed to associate ourselves with Christians who have made mistakes? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it'd be better if we didn't throw these people up on, on, the, up on the pedestal 
Anyways, um, I'll get off my soapbox. I do think that we need to be much more about celebrating Jesus and his character and who he is than making much of ourselves. And, and I know that that's not like the cool way to do church in an age of branding and personality marketing, but I, I really believe it's dangerous ground when we allow ourselves to be larger than life in any way. Uh, as we continue on in John chapter 1, uh, the author writes, this all happened at Bethany. So this conversation that John had with the religious leaders says this all happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John had been baptizing. Again, historical context. Oh, those of you who know and have been there and traveled around, this is where all of that happened. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Anyhow, verse 29, we get to the good part. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then to anyone who listens, he says, this is the one I meant when I said there is someone coming after me whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. There's someone coming after me who is greater than me because he actually was before me. I myself didn't know him. I'm just realizing this now. I'm just seeing him now. I myself didn't realize this is who he was. I came to baptize with water, but he is the one who, uh, sorry, I came to baptize with water in hopes that this man would finally be revealed in Israel. It's as if John's saying to the people, look, the whole reason that I've been doing what I'm doing is here right now. It's this man in front of me. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He is the one who is greater than me, even though he comes after me because he was before me. That's a mouthful. Why does he even bother saying that? Because in their culture, historically, they believed that those things that came before were greater than those things that came next. And everyone in the room over age 50 said, Amen, 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 right? The wisdom, actually, this is something that's unique to our culture. Like, we worship and get really excited about new things, right? We really love new things. For most of world history, there's been a consensus among people that, that older, wiser, established things are better than brand new ideas. In fact, for many, many years, anytime there's something new, all the eyebrows raise and they're like, oh, really? I'm not so sure about that. Of course, in our day and age, if we see something new, we want it, right? I mean, I don't even want to read the fine print. Just sign me up and get it here in the mail as quick as possible. So, Jewish people would have had a problem with, with anyone coming who is greater than someone if they're coming after them. And we saw Jesus running into this. We see it reoccurring in the Gospel of John where, where the religious leaders are like, how can you say you're greater than Moses? You've come after him. And people would have said, maybe some of John's devoted disciples would have said, how can Jesus be greater than John the Baptist? He was born after him. Of course, Jesus' response to the religious leaders when he was questioned that way was to say, before Moses, I am. Some people believe he was saying the name of God there. But it's that whole point that in the flesh exists the word of God who was from the beginning, who's always been there. And in that moment, John is acknowledging the divinity of Christ. He looks at Jesus and he says, even though this man has come after me, even though he's younger than me, and even though his ministry is coming after mine, 
he is greater than me because he is before me. He's existed before everything. He is the word of God, the one who's been there forever. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John's looking at Jesus and he says, this guy checks all the boxes. He is God's chosen one. What's more, John, who's been ministering in the desert and baptizing people, had at some point had these personal interactions with God. I'm sure it's highly subjective, but you know, the, the voice of God has told him, go and baptize, go and do, go and be who I've called you to be. And John's saying, that same voice that guided me into ministry is saying to me now, this one before you is the real deal. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. John's been watching for his own sign, right? He's been watching for the Spirit to descend on someone and, re- and remain on them. And in the moment that Jesus was baptized, the Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove, and John was like, and that's it. The bus is here. This is the one. I think this message is particularly relevant to us today. That moment where John says, he is here. Because like the people in Jesus' day who were waiting for a Messiah to show up, Those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're waiting for something as well. We're waiting for Jesus to return, right? He promised his disciples he would return. He ascended to heaven, and we've been waiting for 2,000 years. And sometimes, as we're sitting at the bus stop waiting, we get a little anxious. We get a little distracted. Maybe at times we feel like he's never going to show up. We would do this thing every now and then if the bus was running a little late. uh, We would uh, decide whose job it was going to be to go in and ask for a ride to school because the bus isn't coming. And this was somewhat of a dangerous job, not because my mother wasn't happy to give us a ride to school, but because a time or two she had, you know, gotten us all into the car and we're pulling up out of the driveway and just as, guess what drives by? The bus, right? So you just didn't want to be wrong about it because she was happy to give us a ride to school if the bus wasn't coming. But if the bus was coming, you just sit there and you wait for it, right? And so I think for some of us, waiting for Jesus to return can feel a little bit like a bus stop with no hope of a bus ever showing up. And we can begin over time to lose hope and we begin to... Uh, to break faith and to wander away from them. I'm not waiting for him anymore. The message that John proclaimed and the message that's echoed throughout Jesus' ministry is that he is here. And so I know on the one hand, we believe that Christ will return. He will judge all recreation. He will establish a kingdom that knows no end. He'll wipe every tear from our face. All sickness and pain and sin will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. And God will establish a kingdom for his people that knows no end and is only filled with goodness. 
Yes, we're waiting for that day. But scripture reminds us that it is already here. That Jesus has already come as well. The apostles said that today is the day of salvation. Yes, there's eternal kingdom that we're waiting for. But our participation in that kingdom is not something that we're waiting for. It's something that we can live in today. One of the ways that the apostles characterized themselves was as ambassadors of Christ. It's that whole idea of kingdom. And so we live in a hostile territory that is passing away. And what we're really waiting for is for that hostile territory to pass away so that only the kingdom remains. But the reality is we're not waiting for the kingdom. The kingdom's already here. And I think sometimes if we make that little shift in our mind, and I think Scripture would want us to make that shift in our mind, we would live differently. We would live differently if we were waiting for the, uh, waiting for the hostile kingdom to pass away rather than waiting for the true kingdom to be here. Because the true kingdom is already here. 